0: Uh, Today's reading is from Judges uh, 8, 29 to 9, 21. So if you need to sit down, you're welcome to. (laughs) It's kind of long. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at in the of the Abysserites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Bilbereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their god who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them and the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke to all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Bilbereth, with which Abimelech hired, the worth, hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the, son, the sons of Jerubbabel seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel was left, for he had hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, uh, and all Bethmeo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went out and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel, in his house, and have done him as his deeds deserved. For my father fought you and risked his life to deliver you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam, and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out of Abimelech, and devour the leaders of Shechem and Bethmeo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Bethmeo, and and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away, and fled, and went to Beer, and lived there because because of Abimelech, his brother. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let me open us with a word of prayer. Father, as we open your word, we remember that this is your word and it is given for our good and these are words of truth. So please may we approach on bended knee in our hearts and may our hearts receive what it is you want to teach us and ultimately may you bring us to Jesus, the Lord of life, in whom alone there is life abundant. In his name we pray, amen. Um, Well, to state the obvious, this chapter gets pretty dark. Um, And we only read the first half of the chapter. We're going to actually cover all of chapter 9 this morning. And just to warn you, the second half gets even darker. Um, Now, there's much in the Bible that is encouraging, that is inspiring, that is deeply hopeful. And the main message of the Bible is good news. We never want to forget this. The main message of the Bible is that God loved us enough to come to us himself and send his son to bear our sin and our guilt and our shame so that we might have life in him. That's, that's what the Bible is about. But yet the Bible also speaks truly about what is broken and distorted, and it doesn't shy away from those realities in life. And I think it's one of the reasons why the Bible, written two to 3,000 years ago, depending on the part of the Bible you're looking at, why it still speaks to the hearts of people living in very different cultures and different times. And the reason it still speaks to us is because it speaks truth. And sometimes that truth is pretty dark. The truth we're seeing in the text this morning is that evil in the end devours itself. But as we look at this truth, there's another truth I want us to keep in mind as kind of a background for all that we're going to see this morning. And it's the truth that we read in Isaiah 9. You probably thought it was strange to read Isaiah 9. We're not in Christmas season. That's mostly a Christmas passage but there's a truth in here that we have to keep in mind, or we will just despair if we spend too long in Judges 9. Let me read Isaiah 9:2 for us again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them has light shone. Jesus in Matthew 4 and 5 apply this to himself. He came into a world of darkness, and he himself was the light. And so when you read Judges, it's not a key for us to grow hopeless, but it does reveal truth about the darkness in the world that Jesus came into. And if anything, Judges 9 shows us how great our need for Christ is, that the evil in our hearts is probably greater than we realize. And at the same time, the darker the darkness gets, the the brighter that Jesus shines, so let's keep this in the background as dark as chapter nine gets. Remember, Jesus shines more brightly. And this is the very darkness that he has come into. Keep that truth in the back of your mind as we go through this. Now, the outline for us this morning is first point, a treacherous bid to rule. Second point, speaking truth to power. And third point, evil devours itself. Now, I actually had a start. In chapter 8, because there's some background we need to know before we get into chapter 9. So let me read again for us the last couple of verses of chapter 8. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring. For he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. He called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age. And was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again, and they hoard after the Baals, and made Baal eat their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done. This explains why chapter 9 gets so dark. And specifically the verses 33 and 34. That Israel turned away from Yahweh. And the lingering in mean, this, it's a shocking language. It startles. They hoard after the Baals. But this is what explains all the darkness that comes. And this also explains why God hates sin. Sin is not just something minor, insignificant, significant. False idolatry is not just a whoopsie, but it's something that leads to all of the violence and tragedy and senselessness of chapter 9. It all is because Israel worships the wrong God. Never underestimate the power of worship, what we trust in, what we love, what we desire. What you worship will form you more than anything else. It will form you more than your degrees, more than your job, more than your family, more than your experience. What you trust in, what you desire, what you love, that is what you worship. And if we worship God and his son Jesus, we will look like him. If we worship the bales of our world, we'll begin to look like them too. That's what happens in chapter 9. One of the things we also see again before we actually get into chapter nine is Gideon's legacy. If you me, if you remember from last week, I mentioned Gideon begins faultingly and then well with faith. He's willing to lead three hundred Israelites against one hundred and twenty thousand Midianites because he trusts God and he begins in worship, trusting that God will will deliver him because God had told him he would. And what begins with faith in delivering Israel though then turns south and he ends up. Destroying two Israelite villages, raising them to the ground because they offended him. And then in chapter 8, verse 23, he makes this great statement that uh, Gideon says, look, I'm not going to be your king. Yahweh is your king. He will rule over you. And me and my sons, we will not rule over you. And that sounds great. But then Gideon goes on to act just like a king will. He accepts tribute. He builds a a religious center in his hometown. And here we learn in these last few verses that he had 70 sons. Why? Because he had many wives. And that's the key. Now, polygamy was not uncommon of the time. But having many wives was, unless you were a king. That was kind of common practice within Canaanite kingdoms. You use marriage as a way to build political alliances. You want to build an alliance with a neighboring nation where you marry one of the princesses. And now there's a built-in kind of reciprocal relationship there. Gideon had many wives. So again, Gideon may have said he wasn't going to be king, but he acted like a king. And in many ways, Abimelech, who is Gideon's son, just takes Gideon's very obvious desire to be a king and his tendency to be uh, offended and take vengeance, personal vengeance, he just takes these fact or these um, attributes that were in Gideon and just takes them to level eleven. And this finally brings us to our first point. Again, a uh, I don't what it's called a treacherous bid to rule. Let me read for us verses one to six. Now Abimelech the son of Jerubbaal went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the, in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rules over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal, Berit, and with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself and all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. The story is told quickly is told briefly and it is told brutally. Abimelech by the way helpful to know about him again his he's the son of Gideon and his name in Hebrew literally means my father is king. That is the legacy that Gideon has given to Abimelech. And so Abimelech, he desires to be king. And he seems to be, he's living at Ophrah with his 70 half-brothers. And he's realizing if he's going to be king, it's not going to happen at Ophrah for multiple reasons. Well, there's 70, actually, his competitors. And they're full. They're full brothers. He's the son of a concubine, Abimelech. A concubine was somewhere in between a slave and a wife. So they weren't quite slaves, but they weren't inheriting wives. And so Abimelech is a son of a concubine. Although Gideon was his rightful father, he would never be the one to inherit whatever rule Gideon would pass on. And even if there was, there'd be 70 other brothers to compete with. Not only that, because Gideon's mother is a concubine who's from Shechem, again, Abimelech is only partly from Ophrah whereas the 70 sons of Gideon are all fully from Ophrah. So there are many reasons why Abimelech, he's, he's looking at the, at the playing field and he's realizing this is not where it's going to happen. So he goes back to Shechem, and Shechem has a kind of a noble ancestry, also tragic when we consider what will happen with Shechem. But Shechem was a place where God spoke to Abram and told him, this is the land I'm going to give you. And that was the first place that an altar was built to Yahweh by Abram, the first altar built in Israel was at Shechem, long, long, long ago. And so he has a long and noble ancestry. And so he goes to Shechem and, and we begin to see that Abimelech is, he's politically savvy. He knows what he's up to. And he doesn't just go to the leaders of Shechem. First he goes to his own kinfolk. And he says, look, why be ruled by these 70 sons of Gideon who aren't even from Shemek? Why not be ruled by one of your own? And he gets his. Brothers, and, or his 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 mother and, and family on his side, and then they take his case to the leaders of Shemek. And the leaders of Shemek very quickly get behind behind Abimelech. And I mean, they're, they're, you know, you're trying to figure out what's the backstory here. But like, were the seventy sons of Gideon unpopular? Is that why the leaders of Shemek got behind Abimelech so quickly? Or maybe they just they just didn't want to bend the knee to anyone else. It's not clear. But they give to Abimelech 70 pieces of silver. Why 70? Well, one piece for each head of the sons of Gideon. Abimelech is the one who goes on and commits the deed, but the leaders of Shechem knew what they were up to. And so Abimelech takes those 70 pieces of silver, he goes to Ophrah, and then he kills all his half-brothers. And the picture there is not of, you know, warfare, and they're all massacred. It's, it's he kills them execution style, one after another, on the same stone. Seventy. Sixty-nine, actually, but right when you're killing that many people, you lose track. It's almost unbelievable. You've got to wonder, how much did Abimelech hate his brothers, that he was willing to kill them in this kind of methodical, calculated, cold? This isn't in the heat of battle. But again, that's misunderstanding what's going on. Abimelech didn't kill his brothers because he hated them. He killed his brothers because he wanted to be king. And they stood in his way. Again, never underestimate the power of worship. Abimelech worshipped being king. You gotta wonder with Abimelech, right? I mean, he's, he's a son of a, of a concubine, but he grows up in Orpha. Probably his whole life he's told he's less than his 70 brothers. He knows that He'll never inherit anything. Maybe the thought is if he becomes king, finally he'll be worthy of something. He'll be, he'll be able to prove his worth. Whatever reason, again, what you worship forms you more than anything else. And he's willing to kill these 70 half-brothers. This is the treacherous bid to Rule. And one thing I want to mention that kind of covers this whole text, just something to note as we go through it, is that God is silent in chapter 9. He says nothing. The Bible is primarily about God. We, we come to the Bible not to look for seven ways to have a healthy marriage, or we come to the Bible to learn about God. And so when God does not speak, it tells us something. And not only does God not speak, he has never spoken to. No one cries out to God. No one asks for God for his help. Uh, when god, ra- god, god is one who would raise up the judges, but here Abimelech raises himself up and grasps for power. The leaders of Shechem don't ask God what they should do. Rather, they go to the Baal Berit, the demonic Canaanite god they worship, and they take money from his temple to kill Gideon's sons. God is silent. What's very clear about chapter 9 is that this chapter reflects the character of Baal berit not the character of Yahweh. And in fact, the only two or three times when Yahweh is referenced by the narrator, or he's referenced one time by a character, which we'll get to, he's actually called Elohim, which is the general word for God. Yahweh was the personal God. a personal name for God that he had given to Israel because he revealed himself to them in a special relationship. But here when he's referenced, it's just Elohim, the generic name for, for the deity of the time. This is why reading Judges can be so difficult because we naturally, when we read stories, we look for, okay, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? What's the clear moral lesson for us that we can take in our lives? And there are no, I mean, there really aren't any good guys. Everyone's pretty much bad. There's no clear moral lesson. What we're seeing here is the disintegration of Israel as they worship false gods. We see the, 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 the fragmentation as they come apart at the seams because they've rejected Yahweh and they're worshiping a demon. Never underestimate the power of what you worship. but while God is silent, and this is very important, he is not therefore absent. It's true God doesn't speak, but even in this senseless and gruesome and dark chapter, God is present. That's what we'll see. Sometimes God clothes himself in darkness. Sometimes he hides his face, and we don't see him, and he won't speak to us, brothers and sisters, that does not mean that God is absent. And we'll see that God is absent in the fact that he speaks through Jotham and the fact that he brings justice even in the midst of this chaos as we learn that the fact that evil devours itself is from God. That's our first point, a treacherous bid to rule. But the second point, we see bringing truth to power. Let's read verses 7 to 21. When it was told to Jotham, remember he's the son of Gideon who survives, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and he cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees. And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit? And Gold hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men? And go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubabal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and he risked his life and he delivered you from the hand of Midian, And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. If you have then acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth-Melo, and let fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and from Beth-Melo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Here we see a confrontation at face value. It's between Jotham, the surviving son of Gideon, and Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. But on a deeper level, it's a confrontation between Yahweh and this false god, Baal Berith. And we see that because, again, one side is Abimelech and the, and the leaders of Shechem. But these were the men who took money from the temple of Baal Berith and with that murdered the 70 sons of Jerubbabel. If you remember, Gideon was given this nickname, Jerubbabel, It means let Baal contend with him. For he destroyed the altars to Baal in his hometown. And when his fellow villagers wanted to kill him because they were afraid that he'd upset Baal, his father said, no, 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 no one touch my son. Let Baal contend for himself if he's a real god. And Baal has contended for himself. And he's murdered all of Gideon's sons. So on one side, yes, you have Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. But in reality, it's also Baal and all that goes with him. And then on the other side, you have Jotham. What's helpful about Jotham is that that name literally means Yahweh is perfect. And Jotham is the only character in this entire chapter to even refer to God. In verse 7, he says, listen to me that God may listen to you. And so Jotham doesn't claim to be a prophet, doesn't say that he's the voice of the Lord. But if you look closely this is a confrontation between God and Baal. And the confrontation takes the form of a fable. A fable is a f- fictional story that has a moral lesson. And the story is, you know, the fable goes like this. There's, there's, you know, the trees were looking for another tree to be king over them. And so they went to the three most valuable kinds of trees in the Middle East. You first go to the olive tree, which produces olives. You make olive oil out of olives. You use olive oil to bake bread uses to light your lamps. Incredibly valuable tree at the time. And then they go to the um, fig tree, which is what you use to make desserts. Uh, you'd put them in bread, or you might take figs and condense them down to a kind of sugar substance. And then they went to the vine, uh, the grapevine, which of course is used to make grape juice. That was the one joke I have for this morning, so sorry. <laughs> Got to have some levity in a in a dark chapter like this, if you're a Southern or a boy student, it is grape juice for you, don't forget it. But each of these trees gives the same answer. And they say, look, I'm, I'm a productive member of society. I'm producing something useful. Why would I give that up to go hold sway over trees? That's the way it was, to, to go flap my branches over a bunch of trees. Why would I give up something that actually is useful and helpful for people to go be a politician, basically? And it's funny, it seems like the ancients had just as low a view of their politicians as we do. Uh, Abimelech isn't, uh, Jotham isn't just criticizing Abimelech, he's criticizing the very idea of kingship. At least kingship as it was understood in the Canaanite way. It's interesting. But each of these trees, they, they, they refuse to go hold sway over, over, over their trees. And so when these three reputable choices decline, the trees turn to a bramble. A bramble's a short shrub, usually has prickles on it. Uh, think of a raspberry bush. Have you ever been raspberry picking? They're two to three feet tall. They're a bush. And so there's an irony here. Here are trees turning to a bush to offer them shade and refuge. Picture a 50-foot cedar tree trying to find refuge in a three-foot raspberry bush. It doesn't work. Again, idols make all kinds of promises, y'all. Come find a refuge in me. And the promises they can never live up to And the reason is because when we go looking forward to whatever we're looking for, whether it's love or work or success or whatever it is our heart's desire, whatever we're looking for in that, only God can meet that. And so whatever idols we look to to try to find what we're looking for, they're always going to fail us because they're bushes. And of course, Abimelech is this bramble. He's making promises of rulership. And Jotham is saying, just Open your eyes. He's just a bush. He can't provide refuge. It's like um, God speaking to, uh, to Israel in Isaiah 36. They were at that time much later in their history, and they're relying on Egypt to save them rather than Yahweh. And Isaiah says, See, you're relying on Egypt, that broken reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of whoever leans on it. Abimelech, is like a broken staff and you lean on him, it's going to break and it's, it's going to pierce your own hand. And then the final confrontation, he says, look, if you've acted in good faith towards both Abimelech and towards Gideon, and then he says, and by the way, you haven't. <laughs> if you have, well, good. But if you haven't, let fire devour you both. And then Jotham has to run away for his life. Truth Speaking truth to power. But in the end, still the treacherous are the ones with all the power. One thing we take from this section is faithfulness to God does not guarantee that things will go well for you. Simple truth. Merely because you're faithful to God does not mean that life will be free of suffering and hardship. And just because you're facing difficulty, it's not a sign that you're outside of God's will. Likewise, merely because your life is going well does not mean that God is pleased and that you're in God's will. God's great promise to us is not that he'll spare us from suffering, but he'll always be with us. He'll always be with us. And we will spend our whole Christian life learning that that was the greatest thing God could have given us. It's not all the things we want Whatever again it is that our hearts naturally incline towards, that's not actually the greatest thing God could have given us, but it's Himself. And that He'll walk with us through whatever suffering He brings into our lives. But we've seen this treacherous plan. We've seen an attempt to speak truth to power. And yet again, the power remains with the treacherous. And God is silent. But yet, God is not absent. And we'll see that by the fact that as evil devours itself, so we see this is actually the hand of God bringing justice to, to evil. This is our third point. Evil devours itself. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole chapter because it's, it's long, and I'm just going to give a summary for us. First thing to note is that there are no good guys in the rest of chapter 9. None, zilch, zero. They're all bad. They're all bloodthirsty. They're all self-seeking narcissists. And we begin with Abimelech, he rules for three years. It's not very long if you're a king, but if you're Jotham, waiting and hiding, wondering if anything will come from what you've said, it's a long time to wait. And sometime in those three years, bad blood develops between Abimelech and, uh, and the leaders of, of, of Shechem. And the key verse here is, is verse 23, and it says that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So we don't know what happened, but somehow Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem start getting at each other. And that phrase, the way it's described as God who sends the evil spirit, that can be troubling. It's like, was this if God's sending the evil spirit? Has God been responsible for all the violence and evil that we see? And so, I think it's worth just camping on this for a minute. This verse of God sent the evil spirit, and I want to give you two guardrails to keep in place whenever we're dealing with God and evil, because that's one of the most difficult questions to think through as a thinking human being. How do we explain? evil. And here are two guardrails that will keep you within historic orthodoxy. One guardrail is that God is never the author of evil. John tells us that God is light and him is no darkness. God cannot do evil. He cannot desire or long for evil. He only does what is right. And so anytime we speak as if God is somehow doing evil or desiring evil, we're not just saying something that's wrong. Brothers and sisters are blaspheming. God can never be the author of evil. That's one guardrail. The other one, though, is that somehow God is still sovereign over evil. This is not like an Arminian Calvinist distinction. This is basic Christian orthodoxy. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, one of those ecumenical creeds, every Christian can recite that creed. It says we believe in God the Father Almighty. Not God the Father mostly mighty, God the Father 98% mighty. He is almighty, which means even over evil, God never says, oops. Now, how we figured that out, there's room for Christian freedom and disagreement. But those are the guardrails. If we want to stay within orthodoxy, we stay within those guardrails. Now, I think this one's actually fairly easy to explain. God sends an evil spirit, likely a demon. And the demon or the evil spirit, he's got his own intentions. He's there to wreak havoc and do evil. But God's intention is not to do evil. God's intention is to bring justice on Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And so while the demon means this for evil, God means this for what is righteous. It's very similar when God uses pagan kings to bring judgment on his own people. When God sends Nebuchadnezzar to punish Israel, Nebuchadnezzar is not desiring to glorify God. He's there like any pagan king to increase his power and his glory He's doing his own thing, but yet God and his sovereignty is actually using Nebuchadnezzar to bring about his plans and his right desires. So that's, I think, how we explain this. But here it says there's bad blood developed in Abimelech, the leaders of of Shechem. It seems like the leaders of Shechem were treacherous in some way because it says they were. and so there's this bad blood developing. And while the leaders of Shechem are beginning to sour on Abimelech as their king, a new character shows up and moves to Shechem named Gaul. And when he shows up again, you're looking for a hero. You're like, give me someone who's good. And very quickly, you realize Gaul is not that man. First thing he does is basically throw an orgy in the temple of Baal. And while he's getting wasted, toasting the demon god of Baal-Berith, he begins to stir up ethnocentrism, racism. He's like, let's not worry about Abimelech. He's not our people. He's not of our flesh and blood. And basically, Gaul's like, if if, if only I could be king, I would throw off Abimelech's rule. So he begins to turn the people of Shechem against Abimelech. Abimelech finds out. He shows up at Shechem with his army. There was a fight between Gaul and his Shechemite followers in Abimelech, and Gaul's defeated handily. He's driven away from Shechem. And then the next day, you think, okay, well, I guess that insurrection's over. We can get back to our lives. And the people of Shechem, not the soldiers, but just the townspeople, go out into the fields because they're farmers and to work in the fields, and Abimelech shows back up. And out of malice and spite and vengeance, he slaughters all the people of Shechem who are in the fields. To be clear, this is not battle. This is a slaughter of innocent civilians. And then Abimelech attacks Shechem itself, the people of Shechem, the leaders of Shechem, along with a thousand men, women, and children take refuge in a tower. And then Abimelech burns a tower to the ground, killing everybody. And the prophecy of Jotham is fulfilled very literally when he told Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, if you, or you speaking to the leaders of Shechem, he said, if you haven't acted in good faith in all that you've done, then let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And that's exactly what happens. But the story doesn't end there. Then Abimelech goes after a neighboring town called Phoebez and it's not clear why he goes after them. Maybe they were somehow related to Shechem, or maybe Abimelech is just drunk on his bloodlust. It's just not clear. But he goes to do the exact same thing, and the people of Thebes are again hiding in a tower, and Abimelech is going to burn the tower down. And as he approaches the tower, a woman takes an upper millstone, which would have been a large rock, and throws it off the tower, and it hits Abimelech in the head and crushes his skull, and he dies. And when he dies, the chapter ends, or the story ends, verse 55. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. It's like Abimelech who's driving all this dies and everyone like wakes up. And like they can't look at each other in the eyes. They're brothers and they're massacring each other. They're all fellow Israelites. And in silence and shame, everyone walks home. And that's how it ends. It ends. I told you it gets darker. I tried to warn you. What do we do with this story? Again, we're not looking for a hero in the story. As one commentator said, this chapter reads like a chapter out of a Canaanite history textbook. You see the same kind of political intrigue and betrayal and violence and gratuitous evil in your average Canaanite royal court. What's the point? Well, the story is about God's presence in the midst of his apparent silence and absence. It's his ability to bring justice even in the most chaotic circumstances. Again, verse 23 and then verses 55 and 56 are the key to understanding this. Verse 23, it's God who sends the evil spirit. He's never referenced, he never speaks, but he's the one who's acting to bring justice on these men who committed these atrocities. And then verse 55 and 56, which is how the chapter ends, it says, and when the men, I'm sorry, for 56, 57, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Even though God does not speak, even though he's silent, he's not absent. He's bringing about justice, and he does it as evil devours itself, because that's the nature of evil. It seems to be how evil works. Evil begets evil, and eventually it devours itself. I think this is part of what Jesus was getting at when he said, look, whoever lives by the sword dies by the sword. There's something about evil, especially violent evil, that seems to come back on the one who wants to wield it. And this is exactly what happens. Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem band together to do evil, and then in the end, that evil consumes everybody, including themselves. Also, this shows us, again, we should never underestimate how terrible evil and sin are. There's nothing funny about evil or sin You watch popular movies today or popular shows and there are attempts to make it seem like it's not a big deal. Or to even make it seem funny. Until we read Judges 9 and we see that there is nothing funny about evil. And the greatest sin, brothers and sisters, that you face is not a sin that's outside, it's not something you saw on your Facebook feed or on Twitter. It's a sin that arises within our own hearts. Israel is defeated here, not by an external enemy, but by their own internal greed and lust for power, compromise. And we see more bloodshed in this chapter than we've seen in any previous chapter. Our greatest threat, again, is not the culture out there. It's not the neighborhoods we live in. It's not the schools we're at. Our greatest danger is the evil that resides in the heart of every human being. We don't, well, God brings justice, and the chapter ends. I don't want to underemphasize the darkness in this chapter, and I don't think I have. But I do need to mention this, which is that the Bible doesn't end with Judges nine. And in fact, the book of Judges doesn't end with Judges nine. In fact, when we get to the next chapter, we start to see something very important. I'm gonna read the first few verses of chapter ten. So all this darkness and everyone's just killing each other, and then they all go home in shame. And after Abimelech there rose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and lived at Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and then he died and was buried at Shamir. Even after all that darkness, God raises up another one to save Israel. Darkness is never the final word. God is always the final word. Always, always, always. And it's interesting, it says he raised up Tola, and it doesn't say who Tola was raised up to deliver Israel from. It doesn't mention who the enemy is. And I think it's obvious after chapter 9 who the enemy is it's Israel themselves. What he's pointing for is Israel needs not just a military deliverer, they need a savior. A Messiah, someone who will deliver them from the enemy that they can't fight themselves because the enemy is them. And this is where we come back again to Isaiah 9. This is pointing forward to the one who would come, not to a, a happy land where everything is wonderful and beautiful and no one needs forgiveness, but into a land where people are dwelling in darkness. That is the land that Jesus came into. This is the darkness that Jesus came into. Jesus didn't come to save you at your best day. He came to save us at our worst days. This is why crucifixion was necessary. Because of the darkness we see in chapter 9. You might be thinking, Mike, I haven't murdered anybody. And that's true. Well, I hope that's true. Your and my sin may not look like what we see in chapter 9, but what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is that it's not a difference of kind, it's a difference of degree. Maybe you haven't murdered anyone, but if you've been angry at someone, Jesus would say you're guilty of murdering them in your heart. We're all inclined towards anger and bitterness. This is the state of the human heart. And only the blood of the Son of God could expunge this kind of darkness. And beloved, he did. He did. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter what's going on in your heart this minute. Jesus Christ is the light who broke into the darkness you know the funny thing about a morning light, it doesn't matter how dark the night is. When the sun comes up, the light, the darkness always gives way. Light always pierces darkness. And Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has come, and He's pierced our darkness, and He's taken your sins upon Himself. It doesn't matter how dark they might be, and whomever Jesus has forgiven is really forgiven. Whomever Jesus has redeemed, means he's bought back from slavery to darkness. Whomever Jesus has redeemed, he's really redeemed. No remainder, no leftover. And so yeah, it can be a pretty dark world, but you go in the light of Christ. You don't need to be afraid or discouraged. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, goes with you. He's made you a promise. He'll be with you to the end of the age. That means always, forever, forever. He's saved you. He's made you his own. He'll walk with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, I pray that you will be so much our only and greatest joy, that though we walk through darkness and suffering, Yet we will say with the Apostle Paul that we have enough. That we will learn that you alone can bear the a human heart. You alone can we find all of our hope and joy in. Help us to find it in you. Free us from all the idols that we cling to. Pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.